Good morning, church. Take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 and then also uh, switch over to Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to read uh, those two texts, Genesis 3 and Luke chapter 4. Today we begin a teaching series on the subject of temptation. And this morning what I really want to do is just sort of set a lot of the foundation and the structure for the for the the idea of temptation. We're going to be looking at these two most popular moments, and the pinnacles, if you will, of the examples of temptation in the scripture, the biggest moments. And we're going to be looking at some of the contrast between those two, from Genesis 3 to Luke chapter 4. Before I read these passages today, um, I want to remind you about our biblical training uh, that's going to happen 101, biblical training 101. It's all of us. It's open for every person in our church to come and begin this process of completing this vision that we have to be, to be a church that's a haven of hope and healing for the hurting in our community. That means that we have to be equipped to be able to help. And so today, um, right here on this campus, um, we have a, a guy coming from uh, Southwestern, uh, I'm sorry, South. Uh, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you. Uh, I had to get that out for just a second. But he's coming. He's going to be doing a two-hour session today. I think it's 3 to 5. Sorry if I didn't get my facts right. 3 to 5. Thank you, Chuck. Thanks for the nod. Appreciate that. You just tell me what to say. I'm just going to follow you all day. All right? Um, but please come. 3 to 5 o'clock. I promise you it's going to be a blessing for you. Um, and it's for really anyone. Maybe even you need some counseling. Uh, you know, uh, you're going to come and learn some things about even how to minister to yourself uh, or how, what, the, what the plan and the path looks like. But it's a starting point for all of us as a church to, to, to engage in that vision, and I encourage you to come today. Three to five, join us right here. Coffee and snacks and stuff will be provided. It's going to be great, all right? Also, Lent begins this week, the traditional time frame, the 40-day period where we reflect on the 40 days in the wilderness, which is what we're going to read today. It's in our passage in Luke 4 um, of Jesus in the wilderness being tempted uh, by the devil. And the next 40 days, traditionally, Christians have chosen to fast and to pray in a focused, intense focused effort uh, leading up to Easter in a season with the Lord. And so maybe some of you um, are thinking about maybe starting a fast this week. And I just want to encourage you. I think that's a really wonderful thing. Um, but let me just tell you a couple of things. First, fasting is supposed to hurt, okay? And I don't know what really says that, but it really, that's the whole, the whole point. Um, so if you come up with that great idea of, of fasting, exercise, and vegetables for the next 40 days, you're not getting the point, okay? I'm just going to say, uh, it's, supposed, it's supposed to be a time where we uh, embrace um, a, a, a focused effort, and fasting is sort of denying yourself, as, as the text in the scripture says, deny yourself. In other words, the comforts, the things that you look to, um, you're denying yourself for a time period of intense focus in prayer. Um, so it is, is meant to hurt. It's a spiritual exercise, um, and it's an exercise ground um, of, of learning to walk in the Christian life in a disciplined manner. Fasting food is similar to battling temptation. Uh, they go very close together. Um, fasting has other spiritual purposes involved with it, um, but one of the routine things that is in fasting is what Jesus said, when you fast, he was talking about a routine practice of fasting, and what we're talking about there is an exercise, an exercise of exercising your spiritual muscles to know, um, to teach your body, to know I'm the master. <laughs> you see, you think you're the master, 
until you're choosing between salad and pizza in a moment, you know, and you're like, I'll take the large pepperoni extra cheese, please. You know, I mean, uh, this is the idea. It's a practice. It's, it's a practice spiritually, um, and, and also it, it helps you to focus in. So you're giving away, you're giving up something, and you're spending that particular time as a focused effort in, with the Lord in prayer. And, and so it is a, a great exercise thing to do. It's a spiritual exercise that we do. So when your craving for food comes and, and you decide to spend that time in prayer, what you're also going to hear your body say to you is, I want to eat. And you're going to go, no, I am in charge. And we're not eating, we're praying. And your body's going to go, oh, yeah? And you go, oh, yeah? And your body goes, oh, yeah? How's that feel? And you go, mmm. And you enter into a war uh, with your body, right? And that's going to happen. Um, that's what fasting is really all about. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't planned on it, think it about it, pray it over, perhaps give something up that's a, a, great, a, a source of great comfort to you in your life. Maybe you give up caffeine for 40 days. And if you do, you have to be nice. You can't be grumpy. Can't do it. Maybe you give up TV. TV shows. Whatever it might be, give up TV for, for 40 days. It's good. Maybe give up social media. Bless the Lord. And you'll find that you'll find life and you'll never return. Maybe you give up certain foods for a certain amount of days and maybe you give up another certain food for the long period or whatever you want to do, however you want to structure it. Um, now listen carefully. If you start a fast and you break it, in other words, you don't hold to your commitment because you broke to the temptation, right? Uh, don't beat yourself up. Okay, it's exercise, it's spiritual exercise. God still loves you, loves you. Um, it's okay. And God will take whatever you give, give him in the process, and you will learn a lot. He will teach you a lot through your experience of whatever you, whatever you give him. And, and so um, don't beat yourself up if, if you don't actually measure up to what you've set out for yourself uh, in fasting. However, the, the principle of exercise is there. The more you put in, the more you're going to get out. So fight. Fight for it. Okay? And, and, um, and I think it will be a great blessing in your life. And also, like, be realistic. Okay? If you've never fasted before, don't be jumping off and going to 40 days like Jesus. Right? First of all, it's not healthy. You've got to build your system up for that. Jesus was totally used to fasting. That's what they did all the time. If you haven't done it, start small. Start realistic. Start with something that you can actually do. But make it hurt. I know it's funny, but really make it hurt because uh, you'll, you'll learn a lot in that process, okay? And along the way, let's talk about temptation, amen? Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 1 to 7, and then I'm going to switch over without referencing it and, and read from Luke 4, 1 to 13. So Genesis 1 to 7, Luke 4, 1 to 13. Let's uh, follow along together. Let, let, let the Lord, as we read the text, build those mental images that will stick with you for the whole week. And you can just keep looking at those images, the word of God. Okay? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat it, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask the Lord to unpack it. Lord, we just commit ourselves to you. Our hearts are open before you. And Lord, we want to be a people of your word. And so, Lord, as we survey these two texts, we clearly see we need to be a people who know your word. And not to know your word is to be vulnerable. Make us a people of the book. Strengthen our hearts. Make us aware. This week and over the coming weeks, the dynamics of the realities in our world, in our own hearts. And Lord, give us power to be wise and virtuous followers of Christ who live for his glory in this world for our own joy and highest happiness. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, before I get into the subject, I, I want to provide you some great resources for this subject. Um, the first one is a book by John Mark Comer called Live No Lies. Very good material. I uh, ran into this. I know John Mark Comer. I've been kind of following him for a few years. If you really uh, want to listen to him, uh, he's in... Um, um, Portland, Oregon, and there are a lot of similarities between Portland and Austin, uh, at least the city uh, aspect of things. He's doing ministry there. It's really, really good. I encourage you just, get, just to get to know him, um, but maybe you could start with this book, Live No Lies. He's talking about uh, the strategy of the enemy 
and lies, and lies being the foundation and source of the whole strategy of the enemy, and um, it's a really, really great work. But if you're not familiar with him, particularly younger people, you would really like him, I think. Uh, his whole vibe is next generation, and uh, I think he's going to be a very powerful voice in the next generation in our country, and I uh, love his positions, his stance uh, in the Word of God, and um, I'm really enjoying his ministry, so I want you to just check him out too. I think you'll really enjoy him. Um, but next, we're going to go to the other side of the spectrum, and we're going total old, old, old school to a Puritan, John Owen. Um, if you know about Puritans, they are exhaustingly thorough and painfully powerful, um, and it's like you can't breathe uh, the whole time you're reading the book, because uh, Puritans are awesome. Um, but I would recommend The Mortification of Sin, John Owen, um, and what a, what a powerful read. But uh, make sure that you actually go get that version. Um, you can see that it's translated and adapted into modern English. The original language was, uh, the original that he wrote in was King James. That's how I originally read it. And I realized I missed quite a bit of what he was saying because of translation. This is a very good translation if you really want to get the power of it in our modern language. I encourage you to do that. Um, and this is where that phrase comes from this popular, many of you have heard and we kind of live by, but be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Straight out of Romans 8, right here. This is where it came from. Uh, so many of them, many, many Christians uh, say this, this book would impact their lives in incredible ways. It's a classic. But also by John Owen. He'd had a book on temptation as well. And it was also abridged and made easy for you to read. And that particular uh, version of it, I would encourage you to check that out as well. Just take a photo of it and you can check out that particular version. But another helpful uh, tool that's a little bit more short and story-based, written by C.S. Lewis, is the Screwtape Letters. If you have not read that, it's a very good read. Uh, it's kind of fun. It's satire. Um, it's actually defending the Christian faith, and it's really a story of, of 31 letters of Screwtape, an experienced devil, instructing the younger protege Wormwood on how to effectively um, and strategically tempt human beings and making sure that you um, continue with them all the way to damnation. Um, so it's a little bit of a satire, but it's actually got some really powerful principles in there. It's not a hard read. I encourage you to check that out as well. And, and so take some time. If you'd like to immerse yourself in that content with me over the next month or so, check out those resources, okay? Let me, let me start off by talking about our enemy. You see, in both texts, it's the enemy of our souls, the enemy of God is the one coming and doing the tempting. And he's setting the ground for temptation and the occasion for temptation. And for us, you need to know there are three enemies of our soul. Three enemies of our soul. And the first one is the flesh. The Bible talks about the flesh, or some translations call it the sinful nature. And that's basically every human being, because of the fall, what happened in our text today in Genesis 3... That we fell from that place in our relationship with God. We fell into a corrupt state. And so every human being in our togetherness, God meant for us to be together, to give and share, and even belong to one another in a very intimate way. But because all of us are from one man, all of us have, a, have inherited this nature of sin. So the, the practical application of this is that parents, you know when you're raising your kids, you don't have to teach them to cheat 
You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to be selfish. It instinctively comes out of them. And you have to really teach them in those moments to counter the own nature that is instinctive within them. Well, that the Bible calls that sinful nature. Now, it's in a small level, uh, perhaps a seed form, whenever we're growing up and as a kid. Uh, but if we grow more and more and we allow that, that instinct, that nature to have its total way, we become totally corrupt, totally dark, sinful. Uh, the, the level of evil, is, is there's no lid to it, if you will. But when we counter it in our own nature, by grace, um, this is the idea of the sinful nature. We all have it within us. It's intrinsic. We're bent toward, toward this thing called, called sin. And that's the flesh. And that is an enemy to your soul. It's within you. The enemy is within. It's not just out there somewhere. It's in here. And so you need to know how to discern it. And we're going to talk about that. What does that look like to be tempted by the enemy within? And most of your temptations, I would venture to say... Most of the moments of temptations that you will face are coming from that source, your enemy within. Um, I would say it's most of your temptation, okay? But then you have something called the world. And the Bible talks about this phrase, the world, out there. Uh, it talks about it, the world and its desires, the world and its ways, the order of things. Um, and basically what that is is groups of human beings completely being led by the sinful nature that they all have inherited, creating culture and society and ways of operating that are uh, letting the flesh guide the way and all of them doing it together. It's usually driven by passions and desires and pleasures, a desire for power, all greed and all that sort of thing. The ways of the world all uh, being a societal effect is the world. And that obviously has a power on us as we see Societies being operated and things being done by uh, systems and societies that would impact us and draw us into temptation as well. We can actually see and be tempted by things in the world because it has a connection to us in our own nature on the inside. And all of this comes from the fall. But ultimately at the top of all of it is the source of a person who has introduced all of this to the world, to the entire earth, and that's the devil. And he is never really given a formal name. He's actually described the, and everything has the definite article, the deceiver, the devil. The, and, and he's uh, given lots of descriptions to describe who he is and not actually a formal, a formal name. He is the deceiver. He is the divider. He makes things eat, so whole societies eat themselves. Jesus calls him the father of lies. In other words, he is the founding father, the originator that opened the door for all lying and all deceit. He is the grand instigator of humanity to disobey God and to hate one another. Also called Satan, originally created as a glorious angel, he is an unseen spirit who can embody objects, as he did in Genesis 3, he can control weather, he can create viruses, he can do harm. He was originally created, perhaps, we see this in Job really clearly, perhaps he was created, this is a theory, um, as a testing agent for the spiritual formation of humans on the earth. We see that in Job, that his presence is among the divine council with God. 
He's in the presence of God and the divine counsel of things that are happening with humanity. And yet in his high position, pride entered into his heart and he fell. And he knows very clearly his reserved place that is awaiting him of eternal condemnation in hell. He knows that. But his nature is lies. Jesus said that he is the destroyer of everyone and everything that is good. He is hell-bent on tearing down what is beautiful. He is dead set on the destruction of all that is good. He wants to tear down, to tear out, break down, divide up, and reduce everything to its lowest common denominator, which is zero. Only for the sake of the delight of the destruction itself. Yet he is not omniscient, and he is not omnipresent. He is not equal with God. He is a finite creature, and he can do no more than God allows him. And Jesus said he is the ruler of this current world. He took on rulership at the fall. He reigns and is over the world. The Bible says that Jesus came in his person, the singular statement made, that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. In his birth, life, suffering, death, and resurrection, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. In other words, his authority, his rulership on, on the earth. And the Bible says that in the cross, that Jesus made him and all his following a public spectacle. In other words, he was a conquering king who conquered and took the devil and trailed him behind him in a parade of victory. Made him a public spectacle by the cross. Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross originally. But then he said, okay, let's have fun. I know that sounds nuts, but that's him. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Why? Because, Satan, because Jesus knew that the plan of the Father and his will for his life was to go to the cross. And Satan was said, I'll offer you a shortcut. Just worship me now, I'll give it to you. You can have it right now. You can do a shortcut. And Jesus took no shortcut. He knew the will of God for his life. He is a defeated foe. And his time is short. He is wreaking havoc on the earth right now. And you need to know how he works. He does the same stuff since the beginning. He is about the same thing. And Paul says we are not unaware of his schemes. Now most of our temptation moments in life come from our flesh. You've got to deal with it every day because it's within. The second biggest source will probably be the world and its lure to live in societal systems that are anti-God, that are let the flesh have its way, and not obey the Spirit of God that lives within you. We may never encounter a personal temptation moment from Satan himself. So I know it's joked about, Satan made me do it, and all of that. Probably not. He's got bigger fish to fry. You and I are probably nowhere on his radar. I'll say the church at large is his target, no doubt about it. But we have nothing to fear with him. The Bible says that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We have Christ, who has conquered on our behalf, made him a defeated foe. Christ has given us the power of the Holy Spirit. We do not need to fear him. 
Ultimately, he can do no harm to any of us. He cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He might make you miserable. He might can stir up the world to make us miserable. But he can ulti- can't ultimately do anything to hurt us. But you are no match for him by your own self. You are no match one-on-one. I, I liken it like you're in Colorado and you're on a bike and you're going down a path and the path is narrow and all of a sudden you go around a curve and there is a tall standing grizzly bear, 2,000 pound grizzly bear with cubs and, they see, and he sees you as the enemy or he, she sees you as the enemy. Uh, you're dead if you're on a bike, right? But if you're in your four by four truck, you're like, oh my goodness, startled. He could probably scratch my paint, knock a window out or something, but I can get out of here. You see, this is the idea. You're no match personally for the devil, but the good thing is you have the spirit of Jesus and the protections that he provides and the power that he provides to see him for who he is. Um, Yes, he's no match for you personally, um, but he has nothing on you in Christ. So this is setting up our enemy. Him, them, and me. You can think of it that way. And you're fighting all of them. But... There is a way to fight, and we're going to talk a lot about that in the, 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 the strategical aspects of things in the weeks to come. But I want to give you a couple of principles of temptation. I'm going to fly right here, so just jot notes quickly. Temptation is the lure and promise of greater happiness and satisfaction at the cost of obedience to God. We see that in both temptations, at the fall and with the conquering of our Christ. And by the way, the first temptation in a lush, abundant garden, and we fell. All the abundance of God, all the goodness of God, more than they could ever want. All of it's there in a beautiful garden and we fall. And yet we become victors with our Lord in a wilderness with nothing. And he's starving for 40 days. And yet he conquers. This is a great picture and imagery. Wilderness, garden, falling, conquering. But temptation is the lure and the promise of greater happiness. There's a greater thing to be had. You can be happier. God's holding back on you. Uh, that way is strict. God doesn't want you to have fun. This is the idea. This is his approach. There is a happiness to be had that God doesn't want you to have. Next, temptation is universal. Jesus was tempted. Adam and Eve were tempted. Everybody ever since is going to face temptation. You are going to be tempted. What that means is that you should not conclude that something is wrong with you if you are feeling tempted. You are normal. You're just like every other human being. You will be tempted. And you cannot keep yourself from temptation. You know, you can say, I'm going to go hide in a cave. I'm going to buy my ranch out in the middle of Texas. I'm going to get away from people, and I won't be tempted anymore. The problem is you took you with you. And you got it in you. And so good luck. Out there you're going to face the same thing, temptation. You're going to be tempted. And so temptation is universal. Temptation is not sin. Jesus was tempted and yet was without sin. You can be tempted and not sin. Uh, So temptation itself is not uh, sin. Like uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of all time, said that you can't keep the birds of the air flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. Right? There is a line there. But temptation has come to you. Don't think that you're sin or something's wrong with you. That's actually part of being a human being. Temptation is occasional. Temptations are not constant. There seems to be these moments of temptation that, that are almost like trials set up uh, in the Bible. It talks about moments of temptation, but recognizing those moments and knowing how to navigate those moments are very critical. Um, usually, temptation 
arises when we become weakened in a physical way or emotional way. Jesus weakened himself physically over 40 days. What happens when you haven't eaten a meal? I get like a bear uh, and I get grouchy and all of a sudden I, get, I can get in the flesh real quick, right? Well, when you weaken the flesh, that's what Jesus was doing here, um, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable and you can be hurt by someone and there comes a temptation. You can be tempted uh, in that state, in that occasion. You're hurt and what do you do? What do you want to do, right? You're in a temptation zone, okay? And you need to know how to navigate that in your heart. Um, it, it, could, it could be that you're, you're tired, you're lonely, and, and you're entering into, a, oh, here comes the occasion for temptation. Um, you can be provoked by someone and feel anger. But these are the occasions for temptation. Um, and so our two passages today are the biggest examples of temptation in the Bible, and we're gonna, we can learn a lot from them, but we see some principles that are happening here. In the first temptation, we all sin. The second, we conquer with our Lord Jesus Christ. And we go with him through his suffering all the way to the cross. And all of that was his and it was ours as well. We conquered with him and when he rose, we rose. And we got power. Satan causes Jesus to question his messianic calling. Satan causes Jesus to seek proof through doing a miracle. Satan provides Jesus a shortcut if you'll just worship me, I'll give it all to you. I have it. He says, I have it. It is mine. It's been given to me. And I can just give it to you. And Jesus won't do it. And you need to know this. The reason Jesus didn't take a shortcut was because he was going to obey the will of his father perfectly. And he was not going to any, anything deter him. Peter's, Peter said, no, 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 you're not going to die on the cross. Get behind me. Who? Satan. You're only wanting me to deter me from God's will for my life. And I'm not going to listen to it. Yeah, it's an easier path. Yeah, it sounds like a shortcut. I'm not doing it. The cross is the plan of God to conquer humanity for myself, says God. And you have to know that Jesus did it out of love. He loved you. He loved me. He loves us. And when he endured Satan, he had us in his heart. He had you and me. And he knew there was only one way. And he loves us. So dynamics of temptation, let's talk about it. First disguise, Satan approaches Eve to have a theological conversation. And she welcomes him. She doesn't have any reason to not welcome him as a friend. You see, it says serpent, but they had no reason to think. It's just like any other creature, a welcome friend. For us, it would be like a puppy. Most temptations, most temptations are going to puppy their way right into your heart. It's just going to puppy its way right in. And you're not going to think anything of it. You're going to go, get over here, you know. That's initially how temptation is going to start. The enemy is going to approach you with wanting to approach you in a way that you would welcome a friend. And shoulder to shoulder, uh, this is how temptation starts. It starts in disguise, a sheep and wolf, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Then distortion. He says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Do y'all see that? God said what? You can eat from any tree in the garden, just not this one. Satan comes and says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Wait, wait. He throws in a deformed version of the word of God. It has like a truth slang in it, but then it's deformed. And it throws her off. And he comes and he distorts the word of God and he gets her 
thinking about the Word of God and not having a firm fix on the Word of God to make her more vulnerable. What did that do to her? It made her fixate more on the one thing she couldn't have and forget about all the the goodness of God and abundance in their life, the things that they have. Temptation is going to cause you to feel like God is not abundantly good because you don't have X. This is where it started, right here. And a bottom line, if, you have ne- if you're going to be tempted directly by Satan or any kind of temptation, you had better know the word of God. Go back and look at how Satan used the word of God with Jesus. And Jesus, the thing that Jesus had to know just to approach these three subjects that he was dealing with meant that he had to know the whole Bible. When it comes down to it, the details in the Bible. What she had to know was the details of the word of God, the commands of God. So distortion leads to doubt, creating doubt in the heart. This is where temptation is going. Satan says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, I know you were just baptized, Jesus. I know the the, the spirit came down like a dove and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Is that true? Really? Are you really? You are the son of God? Let's prove that. He asked Eve, did God really say Did God really say? He doubts God, but you know there's another person he's doubting? When God gave the command to to Adam about the trees, Eve didn't exist. He gave it to Adam, and Adam was responsible for passing on the command of God to his wife, Eve. Well, so when Satan comes and asks her, did God really say, think about the wedge being placed between her and her husband. Did God really say, but this Adam, man, I think he's just wanting that tree for himself. What if he just wants it? What if? What if God's holding back on you? You see, creating doubt of the person. Satan will always, always break up the family. He will always tear at the fabric of the family. He will do anything he can to tear down the family and ruin it. But he creates a cynicism in the heart toward another person here's listen to this if we doubt someone's character it is much more likely that we will not listen to their word if Satan can get me to doubt God's character if he can get Eve to doubt Adam's character all of a sudden we're having a breakdown be careful be careful of cynicism in your heart toward another human being and you have no basis for the thoughts you're feeling about them That is a very vulnerable ground in temptation. So doubt, doubt, doubting someone's character, doubting God's character, doubting God's goodness, doubting God's abundance in my life because I'm fixated on the one thing I can't have. Then deceit. He promises the kingdoms of the earth to Jesus. It's not a real offer. He tells Eve, you will not surely die. And by the way, Satan got it right on the reverse. God said what? If you eat of that tree, you shall die, die in the Hebrew. It's double Uh, double usage of the term for emphasis in other words you will surely die it's that it's like your parent putting their finger up like that like if you touch that you will certainly the the, the translators say that it's a double in the hebrew um eve responding to satan doesn't use the double she uses a single she says he said if we eat of it we will die 
Satan comes back and goes, you will not die, die. He knew it better than she did. You better know the word. Really, you're going to die? I mean, would, really, would God really bring that over a fruit? Would he really do it? Maybe not if it's just one die. You will surely die. Deceit, he says, he just comes on with a blatant lie eventually. He's just saying that is, it, it, he comes with a straight lie. You will not surely die. You will not die, die. But then look what another error she has in the word. She says, neither shall we touch it. There's our first religious command in, on the earth. Eve made herself holier than God. He didn't say don't touch it. And she adds the phrase, neither shall we touch it. Neither shall we touch it. Here comes religious pride. Putting in a rule to show how devoted we are, committed we are to the command of God. Be careful with religious pride. Then it goes to desires. Satan appealed to Jesus' physical cravings. Just bread, it's not sin. When she saw, he approaches her visually, that the tree was good for food. In other words, she's focused solely on it. The desires began to flame for the food of it and for what it offered her. So Eve is being led like a moth to the flame with desires beginning to inflame within her according to this temptation. And it's hard for her when desires are roaming roaring to turn around in that moment and usually the desires feel really good it feels like life it feels like uh, man I'm really living here this is exhilarating um, there's a, there's a, there is a there is an exhilaration to the temptation as you move forward with it um, that it puts in your heart the more desire takes control in that the the more we are unaware of what's actually happening in it we are being driven by the desires so powerfully and then that leads to the last principle death if you are totally aware of where this is leading to the deeper you get into it the less aware you are of what is actually taking you and it's taking you to what the bible describes as decay in other words something less than whole and full it's not taking you to a greater place of happiness, it's taking you down a level to decay it from you. And the decay in cycle becomes more destruction, division, destruction, and in the end of that, at the very last, is death itself. Death. Temptation is always the occasion and the opportunity to more decay, destruction, and death. That's where it's leading. I heard a story this past week, I'll close with this, Eskimos killing wolves. And uh, the way that they would do it, one way that they, they, they did it was they would take a, a, a really large knife and they would sharpen it down to razor edge. Uh, and, and then they would take that knife and they would dip it in uh, blood of an animal. And I think it was seal's blood that they dipped it in. And then they would stick it out in the cold and freeze it over. And then they would dip it again 
and stick it out and, and freeze it. And then they would do it over and over and over again until eventually the blade of this knife became just sort of a big ice block of blood, basically, on this. This is a little gory, but I figured I'd just try to help you with lunch since we're running late. So, uh, but it's a really penetrating example of what we're talking about. Um, and so they, they would, eventually it would be a big block of ice uh, of blood on top of this knife. And they would take it out and they would fix it in the ground and they would fix it really firm where it would stay and just leave it. And of course a wolf having a very intense sense of smell for miles would be able to smell this blood um, being in the ground and they would eventually scope it out, find it. And of course what would the wolf do when it finds this blood there? Begins to lick it. And as the wolf begins to lick this thing, um, what happens is the heat from the breath of this wolf and its tongue would begin to melt the blood. And of course, the more blood it begins to take in, the more insatiable its appetite for meat and blood and more blood and more meat because it's not getting full. It's actually just increasing its appetite and getting the appetite so strong that it just wants more and more and more. And what it doesn't realize is that ice begins to melt down where that razor blade begins to just barely, barely form out of the ice because of the heat as it's melting. And what initially happens is that he doesn't recognize it because he's so insatiable. He doesn't even know. He doesn't feel the very slight cuts that are happening from this razor blade on his tongue. But what happens at that point is he begins to bleed himself. And he tastes fresh, warm blood. And he begins to lap harder and because now it's even better. And it's getting better. And he's lapping and he's lapping and he's lapping. And all of a sudden now he is completely oblivious and numb to the fact that he is lancing his tongue to pieces. And eventually, as he does this, he completely bleeds out, gets weak, and therefore they can't go very far. You can also track them because they're spilling blood everywhere if they did walk off. And they basically, the Eskimo shows up the next morning to a dead wolf. This is a gory, bone-chilling analogy, an extreme analogy of the reality of the end of where temptation wants to take us. The Bible never really treats temptation like, a, oh, you know what, do your best. But the Bible says in Romans 8, you must kill the flesh. And you do it by the grace of Jesus. He gives life, sin wants death. And it wants nothing, nothing, nothing less than total destruction in your life. Over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to unpack more. This is sort of laying the groundwork for the structure of the idea of temptation in the Bible. In the next coming weeks, we're going to look in the New Testament. We're going to see how Christians who have been born again by the Spirit of God, set free from the power and the penalty of our sin. Uh, we are growing in grace. We are overcoming that sin nature. We have received forgiveness of it, and we are moving forward. Now, how does a person who has received the Spirit of Jesus begin to manage temptation in their life when it comes up? Not seeing it, being alert, knowing when it happens, and then what do we do in the midst of it? There are lots and lots of things to say about tactically how to grow in your faith. Temptation is an opportunity to grow. 
And that's what we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks. So stay with me. Stay with me. And I believe at the end, um, I, I, I hope you'll be alert, prepared, armed for battle. And you'll experience the victory of the Spirit of Jesus as a result. Um, and maybe you'll even experience joy and peace, the joy and peace of God, unlike you ever have before in your life. I think that's, that's the potential. Amen? So come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. And um, Lord, we thank you that in Christ, you have conquered all our greatest enemy. And you are leading out your people with triumphal procession. That Lord, we have nothing to fear. Father, I pray that you would teach us as your people to keep in step with the Spirit so that we might not gratify the desires of the flesh that seeks to kill us. Lord, make us happy. Happy in you. Lord, grow us to be your people who are wise and virtuous followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we live for his glory. And Lord, in this moment right now, as we just sit quietly before you, um, I pray you just bring the things to mind to each of us that you want us to just deal with. And we thank you that whatever that is, we can deal with it right now and walk out of here filled with joy. And not shame or guilt, but power. And so, Lord, meet with us right now. As we even sing this song, Lord, I pray that you would hear our prayer and minister to us by your spirit. This time is yours. We offer it to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.